addiction is not a choice that anybody makes, it's not a moral failure, it's not an ethical lapse, it's not a weakness of character, it's not a failure of will, it's just how our society depicts addiction, nor is it an inherited brain disease, which is how the medical tendency is to see it, but it actually is it's a response to human suffering. I'm here with uh, Martine Batchelor, who's in France this morning. It's good to see you, Martine. Nice to see you, too. And I really appreciate you coming on this podcast. We just started this podcast on Buddhist recovery. Um, although when we speak about Buddhist recovery, I, usually we talk more about addiction than we do about recovery, because that seems to play into the Buddhist idea a little bit more. But I just wanted to start a little bit around how you got introduced to Dharma and how somebody who grew up in Europe ended up at a monastery in Korea. Could you just maybe shortly walk us through how, how, the, how did that happen? Uh, well, it's kind of like, this was like in 73. So in 73, I left home and decided to kind of at the 20, uh, live a bit my life. And then I was a little bit interested in meditation. And I was very interested in meditation because I was very interested in, in a way, peace. And I thought, how can we help the world to be more peaceful? And then I read the Dharmapada at a friend's house, which is a very simple book of a Buddhist aphorism. And one of the suggestions was that before you want to change others, maybe you should change yourself. And so I thought, yeah, if I want to help other people to be peaceful and not egoist, maybe myself, I should try to find a way to be more peaceful and not egoist. And then I thought, oh, maybe meditation could help me to do that. And then I decided to travel east to find maybe a practice or a teacher. And then really by accident, I ended up in Korea. Then I went to the only temple. There were some Westerners. And then again, I had one of these strange encounters where a woman of about 40, 45 years old asked me, are you married? Do you have children? Do you study? Do you work? And I said, not, none of these things. And she said, oh, if I was in your position, I would become a nun. And I thought, oh, that maybe is an idea. I keep seeing myself repeating the same mistake, which caused the same suffering. And I thought, oh, maybe if I become a nun, if I meditate, maybe I will understand why am I repeating the same patterns again and again, causing the same suffering? And so then I decided to become a nun, and then I started to meditate in Korea. Yeah. Now, that's interesting to me. I mean, of course, Buddhism now is so popular. Dharma is such a popular thing. But 1973, the fact that you stumbled onto a Dhammapada book, I'm sure there wasn't that many. That seems a little bit of a rare find in 1973. It, what was strange is that I become friendly 
with a group of free jazz band who called itself Dharma. Really? Because the main fellow of the group was into meditation. And so that's why he had the book about the Dharmapada, but it's true. Uh, I ended up in Korea in 75, and from 73 to 75, I tried so many different things because there was so little. Right. Anytime you heard about a guru or a Tibetan teacher or whatever, you kind of tried everything out. And when one was traveling, one thinking, oh, maybe I'll find a practice, maybe I'll find a teacher. And I was so lucky, in a way, to end up in Korea, where they had such a good practice, and it was such a good place to practice. Right, and so now, you grew up, so when you grew up and met with the jazz band and found that you, was, you were living in France, right? That's where, you're, that's where you grew up? Well, I grew up in France until 18 years old, and then I tried going to university, but that was not really my thing, and I wanted to live freely, learn from being in the world. And so I did, you know, I went to England, to work temporary job because it was easier than in uh, France. And thanks to that, I learned some English, which was very useful when traveling. Sure. And all my friends were into, you know, meditation, spirituality, going to India at the time. So in a way, after being in England for three years, and it was kind of like, you know, from there, uh, although a French person, I decided to go east. Yeah, that sounds like there was a little bit of a trend going on. Your story is very common with a lot of people in the insight world in the 70s, and every, er, sort of everybody was doing that for a little while, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It was kind of like looking for a way to change. Yeah. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, Buddhism definitely offers that. I, I'm also curious, as a longtime meditator and somebody who was interested in young, you went to the temple in Korea, and you guys mostly did the what is this practice? I've heard you guys talk about many times. I'm just wondering, was there a moment or an experience that you could recall in early meditation where you really kind of felt like you got it? You're like, where you really could see the mind as an experience separate than this person, Martine. Was there anything early on that practice that really kind of gave you a sense of, wow, this is really, really going to be helpful? Yeah, because within six months, uh, I had two experiences. And for me, what was really important in terms of uh, turning toward meditation was to develop wisdom, to develop compassion, and also in a way not to repeat the same mistake which would cause suffering. And so the first thing that happened was when I sat in meditation one day, and I could really see my thought. And up to that moment, I thought I was a really kind of really compassionate. I wanted to save the world a little, that kind of a little abstract, idealistic, mythical, uh, saving the world compassion. But when I looked at my thought, I realized all my thoughts were about me. And I actually realized Although I gave myself the impression of being selfless, actually I was very selfish. And at the time I would say most of my thought, 95% was about me. Look at me, don't forget me. I want, you know, it was all about me. And then what was beautiful about the meditation is that it helps you to develop what I call creative wise acceptance. So in that moment, I saw my thought about me 
And I thought, oh, that's funny. You know, I'm so self-obsessed. And then I was work, uh, being with five other ladies meditating at the time, and I could see everybody was the same. So <laughs> it was funny, all of us being kind of, you know, self-centered. And each of us thinking, I am the center of the universe, and the universe must kind of, you know, think of me. And then I realized, oh, yeah, that's what I have to work with. That's what meditation is about. In a way, dissolving to some degree this self-obsession. And then there was another moment where, again, I had that impression of really being compassionate. But it was idealistic. It was abstract. And then I realized true compassion was when you thought about the other person as much as you thought about yourself. And I did that. Suddenly I realized, oh yeah, I put this person as important as myself and I considered the suffering of the other person as important as my own suffering. And because of that, I did not do the action so it would not be causing suffering to the person. So I realized, hey, this meditation, it is helping me to be more clear and it's also helping me to be more compassionate which was what I wanted to do anyway. And then that really gave me faith in the practice, but also faith in myself. I could work and develop with it. Yeah, you bring up a good point. I think that when we talk about uh, the marriage or the integration of sort of recovery in, in Buddhist practice, both traditions, recovery, especially the 12-step world, definitely talks about this idea of self or self-centeredness as sort of being a problem. Uh, in Buddhism, you know, with its kind of the tricky business of not-self, both of them are pointing to the fact that this self-business is is problematic and that we need to kind of work with that a little bit. Um, but at some point, I, I find... Um, we do have to put it back together, right? Like when you, you know, we do have to be a conventional self living in the world. Um, what, what kind of suggestions do you have with people around these kind of esoteric ideas of, of what am I supposed to be doing with this self thing ultimately? Because it's not going away. Yeah, no, no. I think what we have to realize is that actually what is interesting with meditation is that it shows us that actually there is two types of running thought. So you could say that the meditation is helps us to see that there is a part of our thought which is about selfing. But selfing which is not very helpful because the selfing is about what do I think about me? What do other people think about me? What do they think I think about them? What do they think I think? And so in a way there is a lot of abstraction and also kind of like a little of a fear around this self, you know, this selfing. And I think if we see, I think the meditation by itself will help us to dissolve this selfing. Being so preoccupied in a way with our self-image for ourselves and also the self-image others might have of us. I think this is an important thing that goes by itself. And then what we realize is that the other kind of level of thought is actually what I call creative functioning. So we're not trying to disappear. We're not trying not to exist, but we're trying to self 
in a more creative, wise way. So in a way, it's kind of looking what are the obstacles in terms of being kind of a little too preoccupied with myself. At one level, I can be selfish. Or at another level, I could be too worried about the way other people see me. But if I don't do anything to them, harmful, why should I worry so much about them? If I do something harmful, then in a way I have to look at what are the conditions of the arm. Do I consider them myself, etc., etc. And then what the meditation can help us do is move from what I would call repetition. Like we have everything that it be mental, physical, emotional, relational. We develop habit over time, which a lot of the time are survival mechanisms. And so in a way, we develop these different things. And one of them might be smoking, drinking, taking drugs, watching too much TV, whatever it is. When we do something which is so kind of like we get lost in it, and it might cause harm to ourselves and others. And in a way, why do we do this? A lot of the time is actually because there is some pain. And then this is to help us cope with the pain. And, but unfortunately, sometimes it's really not helpful to take drug, alcohol, or smoke, or whatever. It depends. But sometimes it causes us to act in a kind of harmful way to ourselves and others. And sometimes it's not good for our physical system. So in a way, it's kind of like we have this survival mechanism can we find different ways to survive? And so it seems to me the meditation helps us to move from this repetitive fixity, which we might have been useful at a younger age in some way, not so useful now, and then come back to the creative functioning of thinking, feeling, being in the body, relating to others. So to me, it's not so much that it's like you have two aspects to this selfie or to the not selfie. Right. And so you could say not selfie is not being so self-obsessed. Right. Either positively or negatively. Not selfie is also not reducing ourselves to any one of the conditions that forms us. But if you reduce yourself to uh, physical pain or mental pain or emotional pain, you kind of, in a way, amplify it and saying this is the only thing I am. But one is greater than any one of our conditions. But if it's intense, it's very hard not to think that there is more than that. Right. That's I... one, in a way, the, the problem with intensity. If we experience something intensely, it's really hard to know this is going to pass too. Right. It's like a bad version of concentration, that intensity. Concentration, of course, not always good. And sometimes people get really, really concentrated around that intensity and they can't imagine anything other than that experience that they're so identified with. One of the things that I give to my students, and I've always given to them, and you're one of the few teachers who talks about it, and you're talking about it a little bit, so I want to I wanna go there, is that, you know, when we look at, 
one thing that bothers me about the Buddhist language is when they want us to do the opposite of something, they conveniently park the word non in front of it, like non-clinging, non-hatred, non-greed. And of course, we know that clinging and craving and these things are the general cause of suffering. And so the question becomes, well, how do I not cling? I know how to cling. And you have a whole bunch of talks It's one of your primary talks on what you call creative engagement, which I think is a very skillful way of actually practicing with, instead of trying to get rid of the clinging, uh, trying to practice with it in a way that's actually practical and useful. I'm just wondering how how you came up with that. And I I really think that that's one of the most useful approaches that that I've discovered, uh, that you, you talk about it a lot. Because you see, I totally agree with you. And this is why I don't talk. Uh, Generally, I don't use the word non-attachment. I don't use the word detachment. And also, I don't use the word clinging. And personally, I think what we're talking about is more de-grasping. So we can, in a way, of course, we're holding on. Because... Up to a point, we have to grasp to some degree. For this organism, any organism to survive, the organism has to grasp to some degree for its own survival. But there is a difference between uh, grasping 95% to grasping 50%. And so I think what we're trying to do is not to go to 0%. That is very important but we're trying to go down to 50%. And then what we can see, what are the conditions that will make us go toward the 95? What are the conditions that are going to help us to go toward the 50? And so to see that it's not absolute, we're not trying to get into a a total non-grasping state. I mean, in meditation at time, or when we love a child, we can experience in a way, a non-grasping, loving state. It's or a rare a very, moment. It's a rare moment. <laughs> a very clear and quiet moment, so you can experience it. But it is, in a way, impermanent too, because it depends on condition. So in a way, what I saw is that when we practice meditation, in part, we are cultivating anchoring together with questioning, and this helps us to develop a creative awareness, which is manifested in acceptance and transformation. So in a way, I saw the practice as removing the obstacle to our creative potential. And so I saw, in a way, the work in two sides. One is, first we have to see how we grasp, and then we have to see the condition that lead us to grasp 95% and also to experience ourselves grasping only 50%. So part of the meditation practice is to experience the whole of it. When we grasp 50%, how does it feel? When we grasp 95%, how does it feel? Then to look at what are the conditions that will lead me to more grasping, And what are the conditions that lead me to less grasping? And then we can notice what happens when we grasp. When we grasp, we tense, we limit, and we amplify. So in a way, what we're trying to do 
is not to get rid of grasping, because as a survive as a survival, we need to do some to some degree. And also, you can't do it. You can't. You know, if your yeah. goal is to non grasp, you're going to be disappointed because you're just not going to be able to pull it off. No, no, and and I think that's why, in a way, uh, you have to learn what are the conditions. To me, what is interesting is to uh, be careful that we learn our limits. You know, that, and I think that's what in recovery a lot, you learn, oh, let's take a day at a time. Because if I worry about, you know, like I just recently read this article and somebody was saying, if I have to think of all the time I won't drink in the future, I can't do it. But if I tell myself in the morning, today, I, can, I cannot drink today. Yeah, today I can do it. Next morning, yes, today, I think I can do it. And in a way, if the person was saying, day by day, I cannot, I can't not drink. And I have been doing it for 15 years. But if I tell myself, you're never going to drink for the next 20 years, then actually, I cannot do it. And so in a way, what he was looking at is that if I amplify it, it's too intense, it's too much. But if I think about, oh, today, and to me, that was such a creative engagement. Okay, because in a way, the meditation is about not yesterday. Can we learn from yesterday? Can we go toward the future, but not be too ahead of ourselves? And then how can we creatively engage with what happens now? When it goes well, can I enjoy it going well? That's right. When it doesn't go well, what is going to help me so I am not overwhelmed? Yeah, that's right. And there's one thing they talk about in, in cognitive science, which I think you've pointed to, is that these two aspects of thinking, there's what they call rumination, and the big topics of rumination are self, other, past, and future. And when you're in ruminating, those are the four topics that are just spinning around. And when you're in, in, in imagination, it's an open system. So you can actually be more creative. You can be more imaginative. Um, you, you have more room to kind of move about the cabin, if you will. Yeah, I think what we have to see is that when we grasp, we fix and we identify and we limit ourselves. And, so, and then when we grasp less, then there is going to be more space. And so in a way, it's kind of like, if we come back to the breath again and again, for example, then what it helps us also to do is to come back to the whole moment. This is what we have to see. We don't come back to the breath because it's sacred. We come back to the breath because it helps us to come back to the whole moment. And so when we meditate, we can notice this with sound, that if it rains, you are with the breath. And you can, at the same time as be aware of the breath, you can still hear the rain falling. If you think about something else, then the breath disappears, but the rain, the sound of the rain disappears too. And that's something in meditation, if you have a, a sound which is relatively continuous, that's something you can play with. I am with the breath, I'm also with the sound. I am not with the breath, the sound disappears. And that's something we can see how we are here. And then we hear with the multi-perspectival moment, or we get locked in a small, tiny, more abstracted 
element of our experience. Yeah, I watched um, a Bodhi, Bodhi College thing that y'all did a little while ago with Chris Chris Cullen and um, uh, Christina Feldman were talking about the Brahma Viharas. And Chris Cullen, actually, the one word that's always troubled me is this delusion word, delusion. And he actually defined, he talked about delusion as actually a disconnection, which I thought was really great. Because that's what happens, right? When we When we check out into our mind, we, we the sensory experience almost disappears, as you say. So there's a kind of a disconnection into the abstract conceptual mind, and we're actually not even in our life anymore. Exactly, exactly. So it's kind of like suddenly our life becomes very abstract because we suddenly caught something in the past, even something in the present, something in the future, and it's kind of like we caught in kind of a smaller part, which is often very abstract and not so uh, organic. Right, and you talk about that in your, your in your stages, and I've taught it before. I've, I've stolen it from you. I'll be honest, because I think it's brilliant. Is that you know we become identified, become it's when it starts to become magnified and it starts to become exaggerated, and and it seems to me the further out you go, the harder it is to come back. And so, in a way, you could say meditation is like a de-amplifying device so that you try, because you see, the more you amplify, the more intense it becomes and the harder it is to deal with it. And so, in a way, what we're trying to do is to bring it back to have more elements and then you can see, okay, this is difficult, but I cannot reduce myself to that. And there is all the thing in my life which could help me there. And I think, in a way, that's what the 12 steps are about. They say, well, yes, you, there is this difficulty, there is this pain, there is whatever addiction there might be. And then it's kind of like, what is it that can help me? And in a way, the 12 steps is saying, you know, to have a mentor, to do this, to do that. So you have diverse elements. So then if you have an intense situation, you can remember, ah, the mentor. The mentor can help me. Or when you feel really bad and really guilty, you can feel, oh, I have asked for forgiveness. And I have been forgiven by some people. And different elements like this, we kind of make it, kind of you can access it instead of being overwhelmed. Yeah, some of the best Dharma teachings I've I've heard are actually interwoven into the twelve steps. One one thing that I did, uh, people know this story, but when I I got sober and I was a drug addict, and uh, I didn't want to do the twelve steps, so what I did is I went and sat the three month retreat at IMS, and I thought that would fix me. That's not what happened, and, and so I sat the three month retreat, and then at the end of the retreat, I asked Joseph Goldstein if the Buddha had ever said anything about addiction. And he kind of talked about fetters and hindrances. And then he paused and he looked at me and he said, actually, the whole of the Dharma is about breaking free from addiction. And that, that's always kind of resonated and haunted me to some degree. And then I came across your book, which I want to talk about a little bit, your book, Let Go, which I think you wrote maybe 10 years ago now. Um, and I was, uh, when I first met you and Stephen at Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, I went and, and went and got that book and I thought it was interesting. I was like, oh, this is a kind of an addiction book, actually. And, uh, and there's a chapter on addiction in there. Could you talk a little bit about your process? Like, what, what, what inspired you to write that book? And, and, and sort of what was going on at that time that made you think that this is something that I want to offer for the world? Because I think it's actually a, a great book. 
Yeah, what happened is that I had been teaching for a little while, maybe 10 years, and I've been teaching meditation retreat, silent retreat for seven day retreat. And what I could see is that although, of course, meditation is not necessarily easy, but I could see that it was easy for people to meditate. In this situation, people could meditate. First two days were a little difficult, but then they could get more calm, more quiet, and they found it very helpful. So at that level, I could see people had no trouble with meditation. But what I could recognize is that again and again, when I talk with people in interviews, that actually the meditation at one level on this meditation retreat, although they might give them some insight, although they might dissolve a little bit the grasping, they could not seem to resolve the habit. So that when they came back to their daily life, it seemed that, of course, the meditation for a month could really diminish the grasping and reactivity to some degree, yes. But then they would say, but then something happened and puff, I go back again and again to my habitual reactivity. So then I became very interested in that. You know, first I wanted to look at what were these habits. And the more I talked with people, I thought, oh yeah, we have mental habits, we have emotional habits, we have physical habits, we have relationship habits. And then I realized that actually the habits were creative functions. So we all have creative functions, thought, thinking, emotion, uh, sensation, relation. It's all creative functioning. But then it becomes habituated, and then it becomes more fixed, and then it becomes more limiting. And so I thought, well, how does the meditation helps us to come back to the creative function? And so that's why I became very interested in a way in the nuts and bolts of how the meditation works in terms of that, in terms of returning to the creative functioning and also in terms of seeing the habituation. Then I started to think about what I call the four stages of, you could say, letting go or creative engagement. And that often we make the mistake of thinking letting go of habits is like one morning I wake up, I let go forever after. Right. And this doesn't work. It doesn't work. I tried. I tried so hard. <laughs> and so I realized that actually there are different types of letting go and all of them are as valuable as the other. And the problem is that we fixate on this total 100% letting go. And that one is much rarer. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but it's much rare. And so then I thought, yeah, you have the letting go of after you realize, oh, I made a mistake, or I went on a bender, but now it's finished. So in a way, you have the end of it. Then after a while, you see yourself in the middle of it. And that's what the most frustrating. You're so aware. You're angry, or you're lost, or you're caught. And you can't enjoy it because now you're aware of it. But that diminish the intensity. And then you start to realize, oh, I am getting caught because of this condition and this trigger and this contributing factor. And then you can decide, oh, I could creatively engage. I could do something else. And then you have what I call before. 
when suddenly there is enough power in the mindfulness and you think, wait a minute, I have done this for the last 20 years, but today could I decide to do something else? And then you realize you're not, you normally don't do something else because you prefer the fear of the known than the, because you don't know the unknown. So you prefer the pain of the known than the known pain of the unknown. Yeah, the but comfort. if you go beyond that, yeah. and then you experience that actually, it's so nice, it's so good. Yeah, people like the repetition. People feel comfortable with familiarity, even if the familiarity is super painful, because they at least know, and that's that's a lot of times what happens that drives these addiction things. You know, the other thing that we talk about a lot in the states—I don't know how relevant this is in your world—but because mindfulness and mindfulness-based stress reduction is so popular over here, people get in this argument of like, is it one or the other, right? And so, a lot of times, the focus on mindfulness-based stress reduction is to just kind of alleviate the stress, like just take the symptoms down a little bit, but which is good for some people. But I think a lot of people who are using Dharma are getting at what you want to get at. They don't want to just alleviate their symptoms. They don't want to just go back to the breath when they're stressed out. They actually want to transform these underlying habits. They want to be able to get at those things. Um, and it sounds like the creative engagement uh, is a way to do that. And I think that that's, that's the hard work that people don't always want to do is be honest about how hard the struggle and how how hard the habits are. Yes and no, because you see, then I went further because I think what we can see is that we're not caught all the time. You see, we're not caught all the time in our habits, whatever they are. You're not caught in them 24-7. The habits are impermanent. So then the question became for me, but what triggers, what motivates the manifestation of the habits? And then that's when I became so interested in the tonality in Vedana, and then became interested in mindfulness of feeling tone, because it seems to me this is one of the big things. And the problem in often the practice and the teaching of mindfulness and meditation. And I think that's why it's quite good in the MBSR program that they have all that section about pleasant, unpleasant, because that's the way they bring in the tonality. But to me, that's what is kind of really important. Generally, tonality, Vedana, feeling tone is seen as, oh, because of feeling tone, you have the craving. So, you know, get rid of the feeling tone, and then you won't have the craving. Good luck. And so, and so generally, th- there is kind of this quick contact. You have the feeling tone, but then, you know, you can stop the craving. But personally, I think what is so important is to know our habits. Then the second thing is to know what's a tonality. Because if you look at the tonality, then you can see, oh, this person might be addicted because of unpleasant tonality. Or this person might be addicted because of pleasant tonality. Like recently I read this article by this woman and she said when she was 15 years old, she was very shy, very socially anxious. Then she drank her first uh, strong liquor and she said she fell in love. She fell in love with alcohol because it gave us such 
such a pleasant tonality of being social and friendly, unafraid, etc., etc. So for 15 years, she drinks a lot, but she still has a job and you know, things are okay at one level. And the only problem is that she blacks out. Like, you know, she goes on benders, she blacks out for three, four days, doesn't know what's going on. And as you get older, it's not so good to do this repeatedly. So finally, one day, she decides, okay, I'm going to stop because this cannot continue. So she stopped because she realized this is really not a good idea. She has to stop. So she stops. But she says, I am still in love. And what the love is about, the tonality, the tonality of that moment, of that, it gives me something. So in a way, she has to find another way to be socially not so anxious or whatever. But to me, I think a lot of it can be because of that. You have a very unpleasant tonality, then something changes that. Or you can have people really enjoy drugs. But I mean, the problem with drugs is that partly it's illegal. And there was this fellow. So he was really into drugs and so he ended up in jail. So he did drugs really because of pleasant tonality. But then being in jail was not fun. So finally he does his sentence and then he thinks, what should I do? How can I get the same pleasant tonality that I got with drugs, but without doing something which is illegal? And then he decided to take up surfing and go to live in Australia. And then he had a healthy pleasant tonality with the surfing. And so in a way, to me, that's what can we kind of really back to the habit is really to look what's the tonality and how can I creatively engage with it? But in order to creatively engage with it, you have to be aware of it. And that's the other thing that happens with addicts around the tonality is they feel they're bad or wrong for wanting the pleasant and wanting to get rid of the unpleasant. But what you're saying is actually if you engage with it creatively maybe you substitute the drugs for surfing or there's there's other ways in which we should be like we have to participate in vedana you can't be above it you know you can't like people think the 12 links are just going to chop out the vedana and be all fine now is that you'd really have to learn how to live with it um and so it sounds like that's a really important area where you can kind of switch the way in, in which that works for you what is interesting, because you see, you have these texts called the 108 Vedana. And what is interesting there is also, and I think this is something to look at in two ways. One is to also look at the neither. The Vedana, the tonality of neither. Neither pleasant nor unpleasant. That's right. They usually call it uh, neutral, but I think neither is the better word. Yeah, I think neither is better. But then what it says in the text is that if you're confused about neither, it can become unpleasant. And if you're not confused about neither, it can become pleasant. Huh. And here I think it's very interesting in terms of nowadays, how can we deal with neither? Basically, neither is nothing is happening. It's like boredom for a lot of people in the modern world. It's like neither neutral is just boring. And that's automatically downshifted to unpleasant because nobody wants to be bored. And then you're stuck and, there. And I think, you know, partly meditation, 
by just sitting still helps us to be more creatively engaged with neither. Yeah. And then you can, in a way, interpret neither in two ways. One way is at least nothing bad is happening, which is already something. (laughs) And also it's restful and peaceful because our organism cannot always be in intensity. Yeah. I, and I think that's interesting. I think what you're pointing to in, in uh, this uh, text that I've been reading called Nibbana is for everyone, is that this idea that people aren't all, you're not always in these reactivities, but when we're not in them, when we're not in these habits, we don't know that we're not in them. And a lot of times we don't, people think that the Buddhist goal is just like, you know, pot of gold at the end of rainbow. And if we practice really hard and we do all the work that someday maybe we'll be okay. But actually, I think we're okay a lot of the time and we're in neither a lot of the time, but we don't, we don't see it. We don't recognize it. We're actually haven't learned how to be with the simplicity or I would just think the ordinariness of experience. Exactly, but what is also interesting in terms of the text is that the Buddha in the 108 uh, talks about a Vedana, a tonality, which is ordinary, and then a tonality which is insightful. So sometimes it's say worldly and worldly, sometimes ordinary and renunciation. And actually this is also very interesting because he's basically saying there is no problem with the tonality. But do you experience a tonality which will lead to amplification? Or do you meet the tonality with this creative engagement? So then you can enjoy the pleasant tonality, you can understand the neither tonality, and then you can creatively engage with the unpleasant tonality. And so he's not saying we have to get rid of tonality, and he's not saying we must just have neither. Because what is interesting, he said there are two types of neither. There is a type of neither which is, I don't care, because it doesn't bother me, which is indifference, but that's not what equanimity is about. And you have the other neither, which is about, it's neither because you understand impermanence, imperfection, and conditionality. And so it's kind of a peaceful and calm. Right. And those are very different experiences. Very, from a first-person user experience, those are very, very different kind of experiences. And then I think the imagination and the creation arises out of that more uh, enjoyment of the neither, being able to be in that experience rather than just being disconnected. Or what people do now in neither is they usually they pick up their phone or they, 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 so neither, I think in the modern world, quickly becomes unpleasant for most people. So then you just, you have this high degree of unpleasant and you have this little bit of pleasant and you think that that's how it is. And that's, that's a, not a great worldview to live in. And then what is interesting with neither is we could also see it as a baseline. So you know when you go up 10, pleasant, and you go minus 10, unpleasant. But then what is interesting here is that with the pleasant, it has to be plus 5 before you notice it. Unpleasant, it has to be minus 1 for you to notice it. So in a way, if you do the meditation, you're going to be more aware of zero to five. 
that also, of course, zero to 10 pleasant. Then with the unpleasant, you're going to see minus one is not the same as minus five or minus 10. And also you're going to see that if, for example, you are depressed and at minus five, the job is not to go to plus five. The job is only to go to neither, which is much less hard. And I think that's why that neither can be interesting. Yeah, even going from negative five to negative four is a little bit better, you know? I use that grid a lot, I think, too, because, you know, and because of, like, the work of Rick Hansen and about this negative attention bias is I think you're right. I think we're generally calibrated. We're not even playing on a level playing field. Like, unless it's unless it's pleasant number five, I don't notice it. And ple- unpleasant negative one is like the end of the world. It's like the worst thing ever. And I think I'll, that's something that's been helping me. If like, when I'm struggling, I'm like, oh, this isn't that bad. Uh, but my mind is proliferating into this, you know, this huge epic catastrophizing problem when it's actually really not that big of a deal. And and so that's why I think that I think about the Vedana as sort of a, a pretty good barometer to kind of get at least a little bit more of an accurate assessment of what was actually going on. So possibly we need to stop. And then if you want to talk again at another time, we can do it. No problem. Okay, cool. Well, I, I really appreciate it. I I always like to get perspectives on this stuff from people who don't classically identify as addicts because I think that people categorize it as either you're an addict or you're not an addict. And from a Buddhist perspective, I think we're all pretty much addicted to something and there's varying degrees of outcome. Addiction is not a choice that anybody makes. It's not a moral failure. It's not an ethical lapse. It's not a weakness of character. It's not a failure of will. It's just how our society depicts addiction. Nor is it an inherited brain disease, which is how the medical tendency is to see it. What it actually is, it's a response to human suffering.